Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. God brought a child to a woman who had been barren for many years. His name was John. We know him as the Baptist. He was a child sent from God to go before the coming Messiah, the chosen Savior of the world. The angel Gabriel had been sent to Mary, a young woman in the town of Nazareth, who was betrothed to Joseph, a carpenter. The days came for both John and Jesus to be born. Thirty years have passed as we reach Luke chapter 3. We find John preaching and baptizing people in the wilderness. His message is one of divine comfort. Repent! We dive into this comforting message of repentance as we join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. We have finished with the birth and the childhood of Jesus and John the Baptist, and 18 years actually passed between chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Luke, and so Jesus and John are now grown men, and it's time for God's plan to be set in motion. And so how does God begin his plan to rescue the world? With a message of repentance. Most of us don't associate repentance with the word comfort. If I were to greet you all this morning as John greeted his crowd by saying, Welcome, children of Satan. Most of us would probably not be going, man, this is awesome. I just feel so loved, you know. You'd probably not, right? I mean, so, you know, we we understand that repentance is not usually a word we associate with comfort. And, And John's first sermon certainly didn't make some of his listeners comfortable. But as we see God speak for the first time in 400 years, since Malachi, now he's finally speaking through a prophet again. You know, maybe we see the comfort that comes from repenting and how we can find it in our own lives. So chapter three, verse one. It says, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest, the word of God came into John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now, remember, Luke is trying to show us that we have a reliable faith. And so he sets the stage for Jesus and John's adult life by letting us know all the facts of who was in charge and what was going on, what the political scene was in Rome and what the political scene was in Israel at this time. He tells us that this was during the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius was the one who followed after Augustus Caesar. He was one of Rome's greatest generals, expanding the borders of the Roman Empire all the way to Germania. Um, He didn't like being emperor, though. Pliny the Elder, a Roman historian, called him the gloomiest of men, um, and he was more of a recluse than a ruler. He did, however, reign longer, 22 years, than any emperor until Antonius Pius in 161 AD. Now, he came to power in 15 AD, ruled for two years with his father. People criticize the Bible and say, the Bible that's wrong, you know, that says that 30 AD was the 15th year of his reign. Yes, the word there, reign, actually just refers, it does not the word for monarchy, it's the word for governing power. He was a co-regent with his father, Augustus, in 15 AD. And so that's what Luke is referring to here. 
The second person that is in power during this time, he mentions is Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. Now, Pontius Pilate came to power in 26 AD. Pontius hated the Jews, wanted them destroyed. In fact, when he was appointed to the position, he broke all precedent by bringing into Jerusalem military flags, insignia, banners, bearing the image of Caesar. This defied Jewish law, of course, because no symbol or insignia of any man or any other god was to be found in Jerusalem. He only removed them when the Jews offered to die at the hands of his soldiers rather than consent to such blasphemy. He was known for, he summoned a bunch of his protesters to come before him and to plead their case, and he hid soldiers, his own soldiers who were dressed as civilians among them, and then had them all killed, had them all knife everybody and just said, I don't know what happened. He was eventually recalled to Rome in 36 AD at the complaint of the Jews because he couldn't keep the peace. And uh, from there, he was exiled to Gaul where he died. The next ruler it mentions was Herod, being Tetrarch of Galilee. Now, this is not Herod the Great. This is his son, Herod Antipas, one of his many sons. The word Tetrarch means ruler of a fourth part. When Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided into four parts, three going to his sons and the other one going to this guy, Lysanias, we'll see in a moment. We are going to become most familiar here with this guy, Herod Antipas, because he was the one who ruled Galilee, where Jesus spent most of his life and most of his ministry. He's the one we'll see in this gospel. Now, Judea and Samaria were ruled by, it says, his other brother, one that's not mentioned here, actually, a guy named Archelaus, but he was only ruled for three years. He was deposed by Rome in 6 AD, and his tetrarchy became a Roman province. That's why Pontius Pilate is mentioned. There's not a fourth tetrarchy here. It actually became just three parts. So the fourth part was given to Rome. Mentions his brother Philip was tetrarch of Iturea and the region of Trachonitis. That is modern day Lebanon, Syria, and North Jordan. This son of Herod doesn't come into our story except for the fact that Caesarea Philippi is named after him. And then the fourth guy was Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene. He reigned over the Mount Hermon region in the north of Israel from 25 to 30 AD. His land was then given to Herod Antipas after his death. So really the only important guy in our story is Herod Antipas. Now, while some players, like I said, are important to the life of Jesus and others aren't, all of this pinpoints an exact date that could be researched, 30 AD. And yet Luke gives us some further evidence for this time. It says also that Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests during this time. So we not just only have the Roman politics, but the Israeli politics. If you've been following us in Numbers, you might be thinking, wait a second, Pastor. Well, I thought the Jews only had one high priest. You're right. They're only supposed to have one high priest, so why do they have two here? Well, politically back then, things were complicated. Rome, they didn't like some of the high priests, and they would depose them and set up their own puppet high priest. In this case, it was Caiaphas, Annas' son-in-law. But the Jews always had another high priest that they recognized as the power, and that's Annas. So despite being deposed by Rome in 15 AD, Annas was the one who pulled all the strings. Jesus was first brought to him when he was placed on trial, not Caiaphas, because he was the one who really had the power. What's interesting about Annas is that, you know, when he, they would ask suggestions for who would, they, they said, we want to make a guy a high priest, ended up being five of his sons or sons-in-laws, so he still had a lot of influence over the position. It really didn't matter. He's the one who had the power. Now, again, why all this information? Because Luke is showing us that we have a reliable faith. He gives exact dates. He gives names that could be verified through the other written records during that time. And guess what? When you look at history, there's not a single historian, not a single person who questions the accuracy of his statements. None. 
Now, they do today because we don't have all those records. They'll say things like, you know, well, 15 years would put us at 32 AD. The dates are all wrong. And then we, of course, find out later that, oh, he was co-regent with his father for two years. If you find people critiquing these things because we don't have the information yet, it'd be better to go back and look at the people who existed during that time and see if any of them critiqued it. And when you don't find any of that, it's because they had those records back then. We just haven't discovered them yet or they were destroyed. So he shows us here the setting. It's a reliable setting. Into this setting, God speaks. It says, The word of the Lord came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now, God had not spoken through a prophet since Malachi over 400 years ago. But now he's going to speak again through John the Baptist. Now, John didn't just go into the desert and start preaching. John grew up in the desert region. Remember, we talked about how Zacharias and Elizabeth lived in the hills of Judea. That whole area is just desert. It's all wilderness. And this was the area where he began to preach. He started speaking to the people who were around him in the area where he grew up. And what did he say? Verse 3, it says, And he came into all the country around Jordan. So as he's speaking, he starts to expand. He comes into all the surrounding region of that Jordan, hilly, valley area, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. That's interesting. For John to baptize people, he required a confession of sin first. You had to come to him, you had to recognize your need for forgiveness, and you had to confess and say, listen, I am a sinner, I have fallen short of God's law, his standard, but I want to make a fresh start, I want to be baptized. Now, that was unheard of, for someone to preach that and for Jewish people to ever experience that. Baptism was for Gentiles, not Jews. See, if you were a Gentile and you said, you know, I believe that Jehovah is the God of all gods, I believe he is the Lord, that he's the only God. I want to be a follower of him. They say, well, you're not Jewish. And they say, well, I still want to follow him. They say, okay, we've got to do a few things. If you're a man, you had to be circumcised. There was another ritual you had to go through, but the final ritual would be baptism. You would have to go through baptism. So you would, you would go and you would be dunked under the water. And the idea was, as your old Gentile life, you know, living after Gentile ways, not living according to the law of God, worshiping other gods was dead. And now you're going to live like a Jew. You're going to live as one who follows the Lord. And when you'd come up out of that water, you would be considered a proselyte. You couldn't go into the temple, but you'd go into the court of the Gentiles and worship the Lord. You, you would not necessarily be able to go into the synagogue and sit with all the Jewish people, but you could sit in a secondary place and worship the Lord. So the idea was, is the only people who got baptized were second-class believers, in a sense, you know? Nobody got baptized who was a Jew. How can you become Jewish if you already are Jewish? And yet that's what John was baptizing. See, back then, the Jews believed they were all saved just because they were Jews. Isn't that right? I have Christians who ask me that. They say, aren't all Jews saved? No, that's not true. Only those who place their trust in the Lord are made righteous or justified with God. You know, you might be thinking, well, didn't every Jew do that? I mean, didn't they believe that? Well, ritually maybe, but practically not at all. And so John calls them to repent. Now, what is repentance? The word simply means, is from two words, metanoia in the Greek, and it means to change your mind. It means to change your mind, where you thought it was okay to be going this way, and you say, no, it's not okay. I changed my mind. I'm going to go this way. And therefore, it doesn't just mean a change of mind, but it means a change of mind that results in a completely different way of life. 
So this repentance is not just being sad because you're a sinner, you know, although that's included. It's a decision to forsake my current way of life and to obey the Lord. It is the precursor to faith. You know, there is no faith without repentance. You don't turn to the Lord unless you've turned away from your sin. You can't. There is no gospel without the word repentance. If someone is just getting up and preaching about following Jesus in the sense of just saying, you just got to believe in Jesus, they're missing a very important part of what it means to believe in Jesus. It's not that repentance is separate from faith or there are two different things. It's just you can't turn to the Lord unless you turn away from where you were. And that's what repentance is. It is for if we, you know, if we repent and we turn to God for mercy, that's where we find forgiveness. When we turn in faith because we've turned away from what we had our faith in, our own righteousness, our own way of doing things, and now we put our faith in the Lord, that's where we find forgiveness. So it is the precursor to faith, which brings forgiveness. For it says here, it was a baptism of repentance for what? For the remission of sins. The word remission means pardon or forgiveness. It was for the pardon or the forgiveness of sins. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, hey, that sounds a lot like baptism results in forgiveness. Well, the word for in the Bible, is this word for for, is almost always translated into, but sometimes they just say for, and I'll explain why in a minute. But into is the more appropriate way we would understand it. So it's a baptism of repentance into the remission of sins. The reason that we often use for here, they would translate it that way sometimes, is because we sometimes use the word for as causation. For example, Jesse James wanted for murder. We usually think of that Jesse James wanted because he committed a murder, right? We usually think of the word for that way. We would understand that as wanted because he already committed the murder because we know Jesse James isn't a good guy, unless you're a Jesse James fan and I can't help you. But... That phrase, Jesse James wanted for murder, could mean something else, couldn't it? It could mean, we need somebody to commit a murder and we'd like to hire Jesse James for it, right? It could mean that as well. How, how do you know which one it means? For some reason, you know, people interpret the verse that way. Baptism wanted for something that hasn't happened yet. Baptism is for forgiveness. For whatever reason, people interpret that verse that way, but it shouldn't be. It's because of causation. They were baptized because of this forgiveness of sins already made available into which they had already experienced by faith. Not to receive the forgiveness of sins, but because they had been forgiven by their faith and now they want to declare that. That's why we do baptism. And we go out there, we don't baptize people so they can be forgiven. It's not Jesse James wanted to commit a murder. We go and we baptize people for the forgiveness of sins because it's already there. They've already put their faith in Christ and now they're declaring it. That's how we need to understand the use of the word for here. While John's teaching was a bit of a shocker for his listeners, Jews being baptized, Jews needing to repent, it shouldn't have been a shocker because the Bible prophesied that a man would come preaching it before the Messiah arrived. So let's turn to Isaiah chapter 40 as we look at this prophecy of John the Baptist. Isaiah chapter 40 starts the second section of Isaiah. The first, I think it's 36 chapters, are are a section that deals primarily with Israel's present, even though it does speak of the future. Then you have this little section in the middle, which is a history of Hezekiah. It's about three or four chapters. But then when you get to chapter 40, the tone changes. It's all judgment up to that point. And now the Lord begins to talk about the coming Messiah. He talks about the future and the comfort that's going to come from that. And so chapter 40 starts this off. And it starts off with the phrase, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, says the Lord. But then it explains, verse 3, what is going to bring comfort. It says, 
The voice of him, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, the voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Isaiah 40 starts with the command to comfort the people of Israel. And yet then it says, Speak unto her comfortably because she's pardoned because she she has already received double for all her sins. The idea is my judgment on her is done. Now I want to forgive her. So speak this message to her. So that's the idea behind it is that she needs forgiveness. She needs repentance. So speak those words to her so she can find forgiveness. That's why it's comforting. God wants to restore. God wants to heal. God wants to forgive. But to do that, you've got to come on his terms. And so he speaks a word of comfort, of forgiveness, of repentance. God wants us to change and he wants to empower us to change. See, the opportunity to repent is what's so comforting. You know, that we can receive forgiveness, that we can receive restoration, that God can change us. That thought is very comforting. You know, if if you're in a place where you shouldn't be, if you have failed the Lord and you're in sin, you're in disobedience, the most comforting thing that you can hear is, if you repent, God will forgive you. Because what's the opposite message? God's done with you, right? I mean, that would be the opposite message, right? There's nothing you can do to fix it. So that's why repentance, the message of repentance is so comforting because it communicates to us that I have a chance still. I have hope still. I can be made right with God again. I can be forgiven. I can be restored. I can be changed. For many Jews who heard John, this was a chance at freedom from the chains of the sin that bound them because trying to follow all the laws the rabbis set out wasn't giving them that. None of them felt like they could keep it. None of them felt like they could live up to God's standard and they couldn't. I know what's interesting today in Israel, it's no different. It's no different at all. They come to the Western wall and they weep for what's been lost. They, they feel and they sense that, that, that God's presence is on the other side of that wall, but they can't get up on that mountain worship. They don't have a temple there. They have no way to get close to God. And they bob back and forth and they weep crying out for a restoration of their temple, a restoration of their relationship with God. See, they know the laws can't get it. They they have more laws today than they've ever had. But they know that the law could not make a man righteous. Because if it could, why would they do that? Why would they be bobbing there? Why would they be weeping there? See, it's only the preaching of repentance and faith that gives us hope and peace. Why is John preaching a message of repentance? Why not one of faith? Because when the Messiah came, they would need to exercise faith. He'd be pointing the way to the Lord. John's job was to prepare as many people for that time. So it says, whether you're reading in Isaiah or you're reading in Luke, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The word there literally means a straight road, and it's an idiom for a right way to live. Prepare people to live the way they should live. Why? Because the Messiah is coming. And if you don't have the right mindset, you're not going to receive him. You're going to reject him. He says, every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be brought low. And the crooked shall be made straight. And the rough ways shall be made smooth. 
The valley, it does not actually refer to valleys. We think of valleys as happy places, you know. But the word here actually means ravines and chasms. Places that if you were traveling and you didn't see it, you could fall into and die. In the chasms that they have there in the hills of Judea, when it rains, they just become these, these huge flood tunnels. So, I mean, if you're just chilling out, walking in you know, one of these chasms or whatever, or walking near one, you can be killed when the rains come down because they just come through like a flood. But all those, he says, they'll be filled in. All those chasms, all those ravines, they'll be filled in. All the mountains and the hills, they'll be brought low. In other words, you know, if, if you're walking through the mountains and the hills, it's a harder walk. It says, the crooked shall be made straight. The word crooked there refers to that which is morally corrupt, perverse, or unjust. The rough shall be made smooth. The word rough means bumpy. When a king traveled back then, he would always send an advance team to fill in the potholes, to remove the obstacles, and to smooth the paths, or to make a road where there was no road, the crooked being made straight. All those potholes and those bumps be dealt with so that he could have a smooth way in. And John's job was to do that with men's hearts. It's interesting, the mountains and the hills are a metaphor for pride. We know this because when it says that they'll be brought low, that's not a word for bringing something down in height. It's a word that refers to humility, to make humble. The idea was John's job was to prepare a people whose hearts were humble and in the right place to receive the Lord. That they had gotten rid of all the things that would prevent them from receiving their Messiah, from putting their faith in their Messiah. You know, if you're prideful, you're not going to come to faith in Christ. I can get up and tell you, Jesus loves you. And, you know, he has a beautiful plan for your life. And he he wants to do awesome things through you. And you go, my life's fine. Why do I need Jesus? That's why repentance comes first. If you don't know you have a need, why would you exercise faith? And so John's job was to prepare people, to show them their need. If I'm clinging to my sin still, I won't care. Somebody say, listen, Jesus could set you free from your sins. I like my sin. I don't care. But if somebody comes and they begin to tell you your sin's not okay, and this is the place it puts you in, it keeps you away from God. You know, it sends you to an eternity apart from God. Well, now you kind of perk up a little bit. Say, okay, Lord, what do I do? You repent. Change your mind. Your sin's not Okay. And then when the message comes that Jesus can forgive you, how do do I experience forgiveness? How How do I experience being right with God? I want to spend eternity with him, not in hell. I say, well, let me tell you what Jesus did for you. Let me tell you how much he loves you. Let me tell you what he wants to do in your life, how he wants to change you. Now that seems like a different message, doesn't it? See, all those potholes and bumps need to be dealt with before faith is something a person even considers. And John did that for so many people. When Jesus came, you know, many of those people were ready for him and they put their faith in the Lord and said, he's my Messiah. Now, when Jesus came, many others didn't exercise faith and they rejected him. And the reason was, is because they never repented of their sins because they rejected John's teaching. It's interesting, we read on, it says, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Who's the salvation of God? It's Jesus. He's Yeshua, the salvation of God, God's salvation. All flesh are going to see him. You know, he's going to come and live in our midst. And yet, even though all flesh saw God's salvation, not all flesh believed. Listen, if you don't know the Lord today, and God's revealing himself to you, please don't be stubborn. Please don't harden your heart. You must repent. It may be counterintuitive to find a message of repentance comforting. Often, we hear the call to repentance and try to justify our feelings of independence, that we are okay without God. 
The truth is, we are not. Jesus had to come and take our place on the cross because we couldn't save ourselves. We can't even help ourselves. The message of repentance is that of comfort because a holy God whom we have wronged doesn't turn us away. Instead, He did everything to bring us back to Him. God made a way for us to have a renewed and restored relationship with Him. We don't have to live like animals in our own fleshly desires. We can live at peace with God and ourselves. Repent. Turn away from your selfish desires and turn to God. He loves you and longs to bless you. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.